name is Andrea Stroud, the Research Program Manager for Innovation, Product Development, and Supply Chain Management here at APQC. I'll be the facilitator for today's podcast. On the phone with me today, I have Mike Fitzgerald, Innovation Leader and Senior Analyst with Fidelant. I also have Mick Simonelli, Innovation Consultant, on the phone. Thank you both for joining me today. On July... On July 23rd, APQC hosted a webinar called Business Strategy Innovation, where our speakers, Mick and Mike, discussed the current state of innovation on the financial services industry. The webinar was well-registered and well-attended, and there were so many questions that we didn't have enough time to answer all the questions that attendees asked. Today, we're going to cover some of the key questions that might have already been covered during the live webinar but we're also going to cover any questions that Mick and Mike did not have time to answer during the webinar. So I will go ahead and get started, and both Mick and Mike, please feel free to answer these questions as you'd like. Let's go ahead and get started. What are the best practices to define innovation at an organization level and have overall alignment of the definition across the organization? Uh, Mike, I'll start and then you can add in. Um, I think it's key that you have alignment in a large organization about exactly what innovation is because as many people as are innovating, which is everybody, uh, they also have their own definitions of innovation. And for some, it's the very incremental, the very small, you know, uh, Kaizen, Toyota, small process improvements. For others, it's the very large change the world. Uh, Apple iPhone type of ideas. So everybody will have, and for many it's everything, everything in between. And so everybody has their, their own ideas. And I feel like you have to get alignment in the organization, especially a large organization, before you start so people don't throw stones at you because it's not their kind of innovation. And so I think that one of the best ways to do that is through strategic alignment. I think that uh, most companies have strategies. Um, most have stated strategies, and I think that you should align your innovation program, including your definition of what innovation is and who does it, with that strategy. So you have the organizational strategy driving the organization towards the future, the roadmap, and then you have the innovation nested underneath that, synchronized so that everybody agrees what innovation is to help fulfill that strategy. So, so aligning it with strategy is key. Mike, do you have anything? Yeah, I'll build on that a little bit, and I think a key of what you said was begin, and so this is often the um, very early stage in an innovation, uh, organized innovation approach. And I, the best practice that I, catches my eye is when companies marry this with uh, standard stakeholder analysis, which is done as part of uh, standard change process, change management um, best practices. What I mean by that is it's a little heavy lifting because it involves individual interviews, particularly of the key stakeholders. But while you're interviewing and saying, what's your view of innovation, and um, really letting a lot of the um, comments come back to you, listen carefully for not how they're necessarily giving you a, a specific definition, but what in the past maybe has not gone that well for them with uh, other change uh, management type of, of processes. So the best practice to answer the question would be in getting the definition um, is to link that with stakeholder analysis and use the output of that not only to develop a definition, 
but also, also to develop a map of who your detractors, who your promoters are, and who your uh, net neutral stakeholders are so that you can influence them appropriately as you go forward. Excellent. And, and kind of building on that, uh, what criteria uh, can be used to differentiate innovation from run-of-the-mill or, or pet projects? And, and, and how can we define innovation? Yeah, it's, it's, this is Mike. It's, uh, it's real important to do that, uh, especially in some organizations with innovation programs after they've been running a while. Um, if they're not careful, the innovation group can kind of become the end around process. You know, I couldn't get this done through the normal channels, so I'm going to get this done through the innovation group. And that can be very politically um, uh, threatening to the um, uh, existence of the continued existence of an innovation program. So you do have to be careful about it. So it's an innovation state program survival issue. It's not, a, it's not just a, a bureaucratic uh, check the box that, that you have to take care of. The way that we um, define it is uh, innovations involve trade-offs and uh, breaking those trade-offs. So if you have something that significantly increases the quality and even decreases the cost, then that's probably an innovation. Um, if it's just an improvement to an existing uh, process, um, it's fairly marginal but important, then I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't address that through an innovation type of approach. I would leave that to fight it out amongst all the other improvements that the, is competing for the scarce resources in, a, in an organization. Mick, you've had to do this, uh, you know, create these different piles and, and direct the work. What worked for you? Uh, and, I, and I agree with you. Um, and I would add that the run-of-the-mill innovations are still innovation. So I would, I agree with Mike, and I would sort of split hairs on this one in that that doesn't mean the innovation program runs them, but if you have somebody in the line that's making a process improvement that reduces their time in their process from four hours to three hours, that's an innovation. But it's not a huge innovation, and it may not be what you want to build your program around. But if you have a program that wants to create innovation everywhere, it's valuable to recognize that person and that leader and whoever else helped make that change and pat them on the back and say, you're making a difference too. Yeah, it's an ankle biter. It's not a big uh, thing to reduce your processing time from four to three, but it helps. And then you add all those little improvements up, and over time they make a big difference. So I think, that, I think uh, Mike's right. For your program, you want to be careful not to compete and let it become an end around. If you have a recognition program as part of your innovation, it's nice to recognize everybody, even the small innovations too. And what are the successful approaches applied to, to get the bottom-up engagement on innovation? Well, that's Mick. I, I think that, and then I'll hand it over to Mike. I think that one of the things that uh, really helps is what I just described, letting everybody be a part of it. If you want a bottoms up approach, you've got to get the bottom involved. And so the way you do that is you let them do their day jobs and also come up with innovations. And oftentimes, that's the small things. Research shows that people have to take care of the little things before they can aspire to big innovation. So they may be doing something every day that they know 
know, could be better and letting them make those changes and then patting them on the back of those changes really creates a um, good bottoms-up approach. Um, I'll just add that I think the most important thing in a bottoms-up approach by far, if you had to concentrate on one area, is people. Help the people innovate, encourage them, reward them, give them incentives, pat them on the back, let them take risks, let them fail, um, let them know they're important in the overall innovation process and program. People, people, people. Mike? Yeah, what we've seen is that actually is a fairly um, straightforward and, and that's an easy, relatively easy thing to do. There's an awful lot of energy that we've heard of and actually experienced through workshops and seen released when, say, your frontline folks get, get involved. In, uh, in innovation. So I think that's easier in the model that we've seen that creates a lot of excitement is to actually identify and ask for volunteers to be um, innovation evangelists to uh, participate in um, appropriate um, uh, design and even in, in testing. The, uh, so that's, that's not so much the issue. At the same time at the top you have uh, oftentimes you do have leaders who are pursuing innovation. Um, so, you know, just watch out for, and Mick, this is your term, so I'll throw it back over to you to talk about it a little bit. Just be careful of the frozen middle, which can really um, stop those frontline employees from engaging to the, uh, in, in ways and to the extent they want to. Mick, you want to talk a little about your experience with the frozen middle? Yeah, they're everywhere, and it's kind of a derogatory term, and it's not meant to be. The frozen middle refers to those folks that are in the middle levels of the organization, middle management, essentially, who they're not directly on the line working with a customer or whoever the clients are. They're not at the very top leading the organization's strategic direction. They're in the middle, and they're kind of sandwiched. And they're forced, they're overworked already, and they're forced to take the strategic vision and translate it into action, and they're forced to manage their jobs are to manage the line and all the things going on there, and they've just got too much stuff going on already. They've got 10 pounds of stuff they're trying to put in a five-pound bag. So when innovation comes along, they, they're responsive. They recognize it's important, but when, it come, when push comes to shove and they have to do their job, the innovation gets thrown out. And so they're very hard to unfreeze. You can excite and get the frontline folks to be, get moving because they're right there with the problems. You can get the senior leadership, the CEO, C-suite executives, and maybe a level or two down to really see the need for innovation and change and ready to make changes. But when it comes to execution, that middle is so hard to get to change because they're doing it all and they're just overwhelmed. And so you have to find creative ways to unfreeze them. Typically the normal Training, education just don't work because they go to the education, they agree, they shake their head up and down, yeah, we need innovation, but then they have to go back to their desk where they have 25 tasks and, you know, 10 tasks worth of time to do it and innovation gets pushed. So, so that's what we call them the frozen middle. And that's why they're particularly challenging to overcome. What do you do if a CEO or, or, or if management does not support innovation? I mean, how do you go about driving innovation at that point? Very, this met very carefully. Um, this came up in the um, original webinar related question. It's very 
uh, difficult to innovate if you don't have senior leader top cover because innovation is change and at its core it's change. So as you change things, you're going to ruffle feathers because change is difficult. Um, Newton's law of physics, the body at rest wants to stay at rest, applies to um, organizations. They don't really, most people don't really like change. And so, so as you create change, you need somebody who is looking out for you as everybody gets irritated. <laughs> and I don't mean to make it sound like, like innovation always irritates people, but, but as you change processes and, and people and organizational structures and the way you do things, um, there is a lot of resistance. And it really helps to have senior leaders that support you. So if they don't, um, you have to tread very carefully. In fact, I think if you're the, the innovator in that situation, um, this is a little uh, controversial, but I think you need to wake up in the morning, you need to look in the mirror and be comfortable saying, I don't care if I don't have my job at the end of this day. I'm going to do the right thing by innovation. Because if you don't feel that way, you're going to get stopped in your tracks. You're not going to innovate. And so, uh, because because you're not going to have top cover, you're going to hit your first level of resistance and it's going to scare you and you're going to be done. So it's very, very difficult. I think you have to have a uh, the innovative spirit, you have to have that fire in your belly, and you have to be willing to make change and, and regardless. But, but I also think uh, on a practical side, you're probably going to have to gain some alignment with some of those senior leaders and start inching away at what they're after. Find out what their challenges are. Find out what they, and Mike and I have, have some experience doing this in companies, find out what they need help with, and then see if you can structure your innovation efforts around with keeping those senior leaders up at night so you start to get them on your side fairly quickly. Mike? Yeah, the other tactic that um, I'd suggest is to really be careful about which innovation tasks you tell you on. And what I mean by that is, you know, there are the disruptive innovations, uh, kind of moonshots. Um, I, if you're in an environment where you don't have the CEO's top cover, just concentrate on the more incremental innovations at first and show what uh, what's possible and that will involve um, turning down some if not absolute moonshots some items that you think people can really get excited about that would stretch you but maybe instead of turning down maybe it's just delay them or defer them until it's a more appropriate time so I think all the things that Mick said and, and I'd add just tactically it would be to focus on the more incremental and um, just put the more moonshot type innovations um, to off to to a better time when maybe it's uh, uh, environmentally um, more conducive. Yep, yep, and, and that's a great point, Mike. Because there's a there's a correlation, a positive correlation between the size of the idea, how big the idea is, and how much resistance you're going to get in the organization. The smaller ideas. We'll get more incremental ideas. We'll get less resistance, and the larger ideas will get more resistance. And so, Mike's point is great in that um, if you don't have that top cover, you probably shouldn't. You should be careful about what ideas you take on uh, and avoid the really big ones because that's where you're going to get big resistance. It's a great point, Mike. And, and it's an important it's an important subject. So I'll just just end. Um, the answer to this question with, with this comment. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you're you're part of the tribe, right? And Mick and I are part of a tribe. I mean, you have the, the 
bloody forehead, the bruises, the scrapes from, from trying to make change in organizations. So, I mean, we're, we all do, do share um, kind of a common DNA that way. But I can tell you um, from looking across industries and also across specifically financial services, companies need people who can innovate. They need people like you who understand how hard it is but can persevere and also who understand and have some experience with not only successes but also failures. So I would really, really encourage everybody um, to know that there is a market out there for people who can take it and can perform in, in these innovation roles and would just encourage you, I mean, nobody does these jobs without getting uh, bruised and bloody, but, uh, but you, don't, you don't have to sacrifice yourself um, for it. Uh, companies need people like us that have these skills and I just hope that it, anybody who's running in um, to the wall uh, multiple, multiple times just, just know that there is a market out there for our, our skills and our experience. Thank you. And, and how do you and your clients handle innovation given the challenges of regulatory authorities? Um, you know, given the high level of regulation pressure in financial services? Yeah, let me let me handle this and then and hand it over to Mick because he's done some some things that have really stretched the regulators. Um, first of all, is to involve often, um, even before the regulators know about um, uh, know about issues, and bring them along. Chances are uh, they will probably come. I know that in one of our uh, companies that just announced a very innovative program of using um, activity data um, from a, a health, personal health tracker to actually um, influence the pricing of the policy. They um, contacted regulators uh, in advance and um, built relationships early and actually asked them, look, we're, you know, what do you see as we build this that we ought to be considering? So there's no doubt that it's a, a challenge. But um, uh, it's also about that the companies who are successful engage regulators early and often, and that they there have been innovations which have which have um, uh, which have come through. Uh, so it, it's not the it's not absolute roadblock, although it certainly has to be a consideration. The second thing to uh, recognize is that regulators don't generally know about the art of the possible. And one of the things that we're doing at my company is we're talking pro bono and presenting to regulators um, for free um, uh, whenever we have a chance to about some of the technologies because regulators don't have the staff to um, keep up with these things. And uh, the last thing we want to happen is for them to see a promising technology, particularly with lots of benefits to the consumer if it's used correctly that uh, they've never heard about until they have a filing on their desk and they have to make a decision. I mean, that really doesn't help anybody. So engage them early and often. And really, don't be surprised if they're not necessarily up to date on, on what's going on out there. I, I think those are all good. And uh, I would also add, sort of a, take, a, take a different twist and say that you also have to be careful not to let regulatory concerns kill your kill your big ideas in the early stages. So it's good to inform and have that working, 
but you have to be careful about letting people with regulatory minds, sort of people that wear black hats, if you're familiar with the thinking, these are people that will look critically at ideas that in the early stages because they will just flat out kill every big idea you have. And so if you try, I always try to keep them at bay in the early ideation stages so that the idea can be developed before it's dead. Excellent. And Mike, I believe this question is for you. Uh, how are IT industry, both hardware and software companies, adopting innovation as a strategy? Well, the IT industries internally to themselves actually kind of have an arms race going on around innovation, and it's it's not it's not only related on what they can do for their customers, but interesting, it's related on talent retention. Um, you know, the IT um, resources want to work for companies which are going to give them new and cool things and marketable things to work on. So they're really feeling a lot of pressure on having to to, um, uh, to put resources into innovations uh, in their own business. But the other thing, too, is that some of the leading um, uh, IT integration vendors in financial services actually have innovation laboratories, which they're now starting to open up to their clients and bring their clients in. Uh, particularly the senior management. So if you're part of an innovation program, you're trying to figure out how do I get senior management to understand and touch and feel, you know, contact some of your uh, leading IT vendors and say, hey, do you have something um, that they can actually go to physically and experience? The best ones um, actually have facilitated day programs where they bring in um, executive teams and they, they talk about um, what, you know, what will happen in just a short number of years when, say, the Internet of Things really is impacting us in a much more profound way. And uh, they, they are able to facilitate discussions in areas that um, really you don't have to recreate. So two things, uh, two points on this. Internally, IT um, service vendors are having to respond to it. Um, in, in their own organizations, and they're taking some of those learnings, and they're actually building programs and approaches, which you absolutely, as an innovation professional, should tap into. And we have one final question. Um, <clears throat> how do you recommend organizations evaluate the success from the investment in their innovation program? Um, and, and are there metrics and measures that, that tend to work uh, well in financial services that you all would recommend? Mike, do you want to go first? you want me to go first? Um, I'll go first. That, uh, the measures are not a whole lot different than what um, has been what is typically used to evaluate a project, but the difference is, is uh, I would say, is, is scale and quantity. So you can't take an innovation that you're just discovering and absolutely lock down, say, a payback period, right? So there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, let's scope out the market or what does, what does this potentially look like. So my comment would be you can use a lot of the same metrics that you're familiar with, but it has to be the light version of them. And you can tighten those versions up as the ideas, as the uh, propositions mature, but you, you cannot 
um, uh, you know, hold them to the same measures and the same standards as the, the typical um, programs that you do. The second thing that I'll mention is don't overlook as you begin to innovate the value of um, previous innovations when those innovations are reused in another area of the business. Um, even if you have an innovation that, say, made it through the prototype stage or made it through a pilot stage and then you decided, oh, no, that's not going to work. Um, in companies which are making progress, we, um, uh, you know, they mention that, hey, you know, it didn't work over here, but we found the same problem over in this or a similar problem over in this other division three months later, and we were able to tweak it a little bit and get it to work. So as far as measuring the benefit of a whole innovation program, be sure that you're counting innovations um, you know, throughout and wherever that they happen to be applied. Uh, yep. Uh, that's very good. Uh, I, uh, of course, agree with Mike. We uh, we do assessments together for for companies on innovation, so we work off the same you know toolkit. I'll say that uh, relating it back to the culture of the organization and your metrics. Just to add something, your metrics need whatever metrics you use. They need to speak to the organization. So if your organization is very return on investment driven, very financially driven, then it really makes sense to have your metric related to something that speaks to that. If your culture is, like my old culture at USA, very customer uh, experience driven, it really made sense for us to have customer experience uh, metrics. If, you're, if your organization is all about um, you know, um, the bottom line, you want to have a growth. Um, you want to have it about growth. The metrics that speak to your organization typically work very well for an innovation program because they align, kind of taking us back to that very first question, they align with the strategy or of the organization. So if you build metrics that work with the overall strategy, it tends to make life easier. All right. Thanks, Nick and Mike. All right. Well, that concludes the podcast for today. I really appreciate Nick and Mike for joining us. If anyone has any questions that were not answered on either the webinar or today's podcast, you can reach me by email at astroud at apqc.org. You can listen to the recording of the webinar by visiting apqc.org.